It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Brewing. Each week, we look at sports topics locally, some nationally. we got a gambling segment. Uh, we usually have an Ask Any Anything segment, which I don't think we're going to get to today because we're a little short on time. Um, we are doing this usually a day early. Usually we do this on a, on a Thursday. We occasionally mix a Wednesday in, but with Thursday being opening day, we figured we need to knock this out uh, ahead of time just so uh, when you start listening to some of our silly Reds predictions that we will make that uh, we don't either look stupid or, or in hindsight. We ought to get to is the final four for the NCAA tournament is set. Uh, the NFL draft about a month or so away and free agency kind of calming down around the league. There's a 17th game that the league has added into the mix, which still flummoxed me, but okay. Keep adding games and making player safety a, a real issue. Um, but we will start with, uh, I guess, the Reds in, in the opening day stuff, Rick, because uh, it is certainly something that uh, we, we really didn't have last year until July. And it was funny when I, I, I think it was our station channel 12, put up the uh, Tara Blake this morning, put up the, the last, five or six opening day temperatures, because obviously it's going to be cold tomorrow, 39 degrees, something along those lines. You know what the opening day temperature was last year? Uh, 60. Try 89 because they played it on July 28th. Oh, well, I, I thought we were going like the actual, what would have yeah, been. No, but, but the thing about that for a second, that's, that's kind of funny. And, um, you know, you're going from 89 on opening day last year to about 39, about a 50 degree swing. Now it is a matter of about a three month swing, but we are going to have a, a full baseball season and fans are going to be able to go. It's going to be great. Yeah, that was one of the worst stats I've heard brought up so far. Out of all oh, the bad stats man, out like there, it. comparing the July opening day point to the April opening day point and acting like that matters is, is a very stupid stat. Well, she did, she did she did put up the last fives, and most of the other ones were in the 60s. So well, this, I, no, this, she's this the weather girl. I'm criticizing you, not her. Oh, she's supposed okay, to do that. You bring yeah. that up like I would care about that as ridiculous. For, for well, you know me and my weather, weather guy. You are a weather guy. I love, I love um, in fact, I'm watching the weather channel as we speak. <laughs> I believe that. Uh, yeah, I mean, this just this sucks, right? I mean, the 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 thing is, opening day. I always say this: it's not a good sporting event. No one cares about the sporting event. It's a great party. It's the it's event, the yes, in Cincinnati. And with the door rules going into place, which they're always in place for opening day, anyways. Usually they make an exception, but. This is one of the most fun events to be outside for. It's kind of the signaling of the start of spring. And for us to have such a cold day, that just sucks for the city, especially coming off uh, a pandemic year. Yeah, no question. I, I was down. I was actually down at the ballpark on Saturday outside of it uh, where uh, I was taping something for our special that's going to run before the game at, at 2.30 um, on Local 12 is when the special runs. So I was taping a segment, and it was a beautiful day Saturday, as you recall, and that was kind of the opening of, of the Dora being able to walk around with it with a cup. And I'm telling you, man, I know people are complaining. It was packed. It was – and I'm thinking, man – I'm looking at this now. I'm thinking, unfortunately for opening day, you're going to have a crowd. But, man, it, it, it looked like the perfect storm on Saturday. I'm thinking, man, if you'd had a nice weather day for opening day, I don't care what restrictions you would have thought you were going to put in place. You weren't going to put them in place. I'm just telling you right now. Yeah, maybe this is a good thing from a health standpoint yeah, that right. we can't have it completely packed because last Saturday when it was 73 out or whatever it was, yeah, I saw a lot of the images from there and it was getting crowded. I'm sure it would have been worse on opening day. Although skinny, one of the interesting things about this year's opening day is it sounds like no one can get tickets with there only being, what is it? Uh, 12,000 available. 12, 000, yeah. Yep, yeah. 12,000 yep. tickets. I mean, normally you have about 40,000 people going to this game. So this is, this is a little bit different a year. I wonder if fewer people will be taking off that day for work and, and going downtown in general. It remains. Yeah. I, I, 
I'll be honest, Rick. I think if the weather had been nice, I think you would. I think you've seen people that would have packed the, that that whole area down there, would have packed the Holy Grail, some of the other bars, and just been part of the ambiance around it and watch it on TV. I really believe that. I think with this, though, you think you still have a nice crowd and, 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 and good for the bar business and the restaurant business down there, but uh, I think the weather will probably change some minds in that regard. No, I think you're right. Well, let's get into some baseball talk. The MLB season starts tomorrow with all 30 teams being in action. The Reds will take on their arch rivals, the St. Louis Cardinals, with the first pitch coming at 410, and you can watch the game on Local 12. We talked all preseason about the shortstop position, and last week we mentioned a few other storylines we were focused on as spring training wrapped. But, Skinny, as we look towards how the Reds might be able to turn things around and have a successful 2021 season, what's the biggest key in your opinion? It's, I think it's, it, it's guys living up to the back of their baseball card. And, and in those guys, I'm talking about Nick Castellanos. I'm talking about a Eugenio Suarez. I'm talking about Mike Moustakis. I'm probably not talking about Joey Votto because that's not fair at his age to expect him to be a, you know, a, a high eight to nine OPS guy. Um, you know, for Luis Castillo to live up to, for Sonny Gray to live up to that. Um, that, that, that to me is the, is the thing. I, I know you can point to the young guys and you can point to India and you can point to maybe Tyler Stevenson. And I am excited by the, the prospects of how good this bullpen might be, especially with TJ Antone uh, starting the season there as possible a multi-inning guy. He and Sal Romano both. But to me, it's just, if you can get me the bounce back years from Suarez and, and Castellanos and, and have Mike Moustakis live up to the back of his baseball card, I think this offense is going to score a lot of runs. And, and to some degree, Nick Senzel doesn't have a back of the baseball card, but I'll even go back to his minor league. Uh, so I was reading something this morning where, um, you know, one else, one National League scout uh, told C. Trent Rosecrans of the Athletic, he thinks he's, he's due for a breakout season. He thinks that the guy's just too good not to if he stays healthy. So, um, yeah, leave up to the back of the baseball card to me or your hype. And in the case of, of Jonathan India, first-round pick, and, and Nick Senzel, first-round pick, live up to that part of it too. I think – for the Reds to even have a chance of competing this year, that has to happen. Guys are going to have to hit better than they did last year. The 212 average as a team is just a joke, and they did absolutely nothing in terms of outside help to, to fix that problem. It's basically the plan is just guys are going to have to hit better. So if that doesn't happen, they've got no shot. One thing I'm looking at particularly heading into opening day with Sonny Gray being out for maybe just a couple starts, but still when you, when you look at the starting rotation and you don't see his name, all of a sudden you see Luis Castillo, Tyler Malley, Wade Miley, Jeff Hoffman, Jose De Leon. It's, it's, it's not overwhelming. That's not, I mean, that's not giving me a ton of confidence. I, when that, you get Sonny Gray a, back, it looks different. I understand right, that. Right. And that's a three. I mean, your three, four guy in Mali is now your two suddenly. You look up and Jeff Hoffman, who's not had any success as a big league starter, is in there at number four. Jose De Leon, everybody's high on, but we haven't seen him. Um, and Wade Miley, you know, when he's been healthy in his career, he's a serviceable number four, number five guy. But now you're slotting him at number three to start. That's... Ooh, that, that, that's got a recipe for a bad start written all over, doesn't it? All year last year, what did we say? If Wade Miley's your fifth guy, you feel okay about that. Yeah. Well, when he's, he's your third, third guy, you don't feel as good about it. And right. that, to me, that's the big concern. And again, I understand. Sonny Gray may only miss two starts if he's back by the third one. You've got a pretty good one, too. But after that, there are question marks. And while he is out, all of a sudden, this rotation is really shaky, to be quite honest. There are going to be very few days over these first two weeks of the season where you look up and say, oh, yeah, the Reds have a really good chance of winning because so-and-so is on the mound. Believe I mean, in the magic of Derek Johnson, brother. I, I'd love to, but I think to me that's the key, is this this starting rotation is going to have to be Derek Johnson, smoke and mirrors, 
uh, what's that? That's that chubby guy, uh, Kyle Bodie, that likes the the spin rate. Hopefully, yep. he's got that spin rate thing figured out this year because this starting rotation is going to need it. I feel like, and it just feels hard from my perspective to look at last year's team, see where they were at, which was just barely sneaking in thanks to the expanded field and see, okay, they did nothing from an offensive perspective to get better. They didn't fix the shortstop situation and they lost the Cy Young award winner and they're somehow going to be better this year. That to me is the thing that's just really difficult to get past is there's, there's really no logical reason to think this team is going to be better than they were last year. Other than, uh, some guys were in slumps last year hitting wise and it was a short season. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of banking on that. Cause I'm not asking these guys at, at age 37, 38 to play. I'm asking 29 year old a Eugenio Suarez, who was, who got hurt before the season started and never got into the swing of it. And I, I'm asking for, for Nick Castellanos to, who, who did hit for some pop, but seemed to, to fall in love with that and, and get back to being the 285 gap hitter who can hit maybe 20 home runs. I, I, I think he's more than capable of doing that. So it's not like I'm asking guys to, suddenly take a big jump in improvement. And, you know, and one guy did leisure. I mean, I think Jesse Winker proved to be an extraordinarily capable bat. I mean, he was our leading OPS guy for the season. Now, can he hit left-handers or is he strictly going to be a, a, you know, a, a one trick pony as far as only hitting right-handers, but and does he, I mean, come he back down nice, to earth a little bit? Yeah, this year. but maybe not because he's in what I call the power prime. When you start looking at age where guys are still in that ascent mode, then they creep over to the 32, 33 and you start the descent mode. So I, I think they still got some guys in the, in that power prime area that, that, that are more than um, capable. And it's more the more than fair to either ask them what they've done in the past to do what they've done in the past or to improve just slightly. And I think that's a possibility. Well, the good news I think is that you look around the rest of the division and you're not out of it. I mean, you know, you're, you're not looking up at everybody else. You're kind of right there in the mix, probably, I'd say, dead in the middle of the NL does 80, Central does this 80, year. Does 87 wins win this division? That would hit the over for every team this year, okay. according to the sports books. The okay. highest of the Cardinals at 86 and a half games there you go. for win total. So, uh, actually, let's get into that right now. I mean, the Reds over under for wins is set at 81 and a half currently, according to the DraftKings sports book. Are you going over or under 81 and a half wins for the Reds in 2021? I think I'm going to go over, but I'll probably sweat it. Um, uh, you know, you get a little juice on that. It's plus 100 if you take the over. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think I would. Um, and I'm probably taking a bad roll of the dice and doing so. I, I heard this question asked in a different vein with our friend Mo Egger um, yesterday with Paul Daner Jr. And he asked, he said, listen, 80, 81 feels right, which is kind of the, I think the, the Pocota projections have the Reds at 81, you know, fan graphs has them at 81. So that seems to be in this number. Obviously the books have set it at basically at 81 and just a hair over at 81 and a half. That seems to be where everybody's projection lies somewhere around the 500 mark, which means, you know, you probably got a little leeway either way to go right up or down. And the question was asked of if, if you had to take one or the other, and I'm not telling you either one of these is going to happen, but if you had to take one or the other, is this team closer to a 90 loss team in your opinion or closer to a 90 win team in your opinion? I think 90 loss without question. Do you really? Yeah. Do, mm. I mean, do you disagree with that? I, I do, but I, I do see scenarios where 90 losses is possible because we're talking about ifs, ands, or buts right now, and we haven't even factored in injuries. And I know, you know, that's such a wild card. You can't, but it feels like there's a slippery slope there of a couple of other injuries really puts this team on thin ice, especially when it comes to offense, if it's an offensive player or two. 
Uh, yeah, you want to talk about you lose Luis Castillo or Sonny Gray for the year? Well, there's 90 losses right there if either yeah. one of them go down. If you have an issue with Eugenio Suarez, who everyone's expecting to bounce back and hit 50 home runs this year, I imagine you're going to be creeping up on 90 wins if you lose that guy. I mean, there there no, are a losses, lot yeah. of issues that anything, any little thing goes wrong to one of the main guys on this roster, and there's not a lot of depth here. So I think you could very easily approach 90 losses. Mm. I'm still going to take the over, though. I, I, I predict, predicted it on the on our red special. I said 85 and 77, um, and, and that's a leeway. You could get close to 90. I just don't think this is a 90-win team either. But I also don't think it's a 90-loss team. I do think it's somewhere in the middle. I think it trends, in my opinion, because of what I, I talked about, guys having those bounce-back years or, or hitting to the back of their card. I, I think they stay in contention. They stay interesting and they are in that 80 win level. Now, the other part is too, Rick, if they're in it by the trade deadline, do they then add that extra part down the stretch or vice versa? If suddenly they look up and they're seven games out and there's a bunch of people asking for some key guys, do they become sellers? I, I mean, I, I think that to me is the biggest part is where does this team get to by the trade deadline? Well, and that's another way you get to 90 losses, right? If you have yep. a sell-off yep. there late in the yep. year, which is quite or possibly. Vice versa. Right, but based on what we've heard from the Reds recently, which is that they are in a dire money situation right. after the pandemic, right. and it really sounded like they were setting us up for, hey, we ain't yes. spending any money this year. Don't no, like get, right. get that out of your mind right now. So with that being the case, I just don't see them being buyers unless they are really really in a good spot. I mean, yeah, no, looking to contend point. for a world series. And I just don't see this team being in that spot. I I'd love to be more optimistic about them, but again, you got to give me reasons for optimism. They've done nothing to do so other than say, Hey, our guys will play better this year. I promise. So, I mean, 81 and a half, I think they're going to be around that. I think a 500 team is, is quite possible mainly because of what the rest of the division looks like. I'm going to go under, though. I think they're, they're somewhere right around 80. Yeah, that's what I say. It's a good number. It's, it's a yeah, number that right makes on. you think, gives you pause. Uh, just to uh, give a little perspective, I, I mentioned the Cardinals were at 86.5 is their win total right now. Brewers, 82.5. Reds would be third based on these projections at 81.5. The Cubs are at 78.5, and, and the Pirates bringing up the rear at 59.5. So, wow, brutal. Yeah. Think about this. You could, if you took that total over for the Pirates, they could still lose 100 games and you could and still win. win your bet. I know. It's kind of tempting. <laughs> Although really I really don't know that they can win 60 games. I don't either. Ooh, they're bad. But I would say this in, in, in all, all that, that front, um, for all these teams in the division, you better not have a bad series or two against Pittsburgh because if you do and the other teams don't, that, that's, a, that's a bad way to lose ground. I mean, you better beat up on them if you're the Reds or anybody else in this division. That's a great point especially if you've got some of those games early where teams are sometimes yep, right. still figuring it out. And, you know, yep. you're right. You could easily slip up and lose a few games of Pirates that no one else is going to lose the rest of the year. So yep. it's a, that's a good point. Keep an eye on that. All right, let's switch gears. The other big storyline going on right now, the final four is set for Saturday. And there's a little local flavor, as I can't believe I'm saying this, but Mick Cronin and his 11-seeded UCLA Bruins will take Wait on Ben Zagat in the late game at 834. Are they still in it? They are. I'll be darned. That surprises nobody but me. uh, Prior to that, the pride of Walnut Hills High School, Macy Oteague and his Baylor Bears will face Houston with the tip off of that game coming at 514. Let's start with Mick. Aside from any ridiculing you need to get out of your system. I just did it. Is Mick a good example of tournament success being a poor example of coaching ability? 
I don't know if it's a poor example, but I, I, to me, I think this. I, I think he, you know, he he got Murray to a tournament or two, maybe um, after the first few years at UC. And you would agree, the first few years at UC were a complete rebuild, right? We we can, in, in all fairness, that was a total rebuild. Took him to the tournament every year there. Now they did flame out, and that was the big criticism of one and done, can't get to the second weekend. And that's I, I get that criticism because that's how people measure you. But I think if you get there enough times, eventually you're going to run into a way to get to a final four. I really believe that. I mean, unless you're, you know, in a one bid league where, you know, somehow you are owning that one bid league, but you know, you're always a 15 seed. Um, so no, I, I, I think Mick could always coach. I, 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 I think he could always, I go back to him at Woodward high school as a JV coach. He could always coach. Um, and you can know, we, yeah, can we talk about that for a second? Cause yes. I think, that's something that's got mixed up here is that people are acting like anyone's ever said Mick Cronin was a bad basketball coach. Yeah, I don't no, think no, I don't. anyone's ever said that. Like even me, who's been his biggest critic, I've always said the guy can clearly coach basketball. I think he had a few shortcomings and he was very stubborn about a few things that really held him back at Cincinnati. Yeah. And, and, and I don't disagree with some of that too. Um, but you know, I think you go enough times occasionally there is the perfect storm. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that he's got an, he's got some dudes, you know, and maybe arguably they, they if you look at some of the Ken Palm stuff, they probably should have been an 11 seed, Rick. They probably should have been like a seven or an eight. Now, that doesn't but, always guarantee you that still puts you on a very tough seed line to try to advance to the final four. So um, this is a better team than probably what the seed line shows and probably to be a first four team and all those things. Um, and sometimes, again, perfect storm. And listen. We're, we're talking about this, and, and then there's also the luck of the ball. I mean, you have a wide-open three at the top of the key the guy, that a guy who, who can shoot it airballs it. You have a guy flying for a rebound that just can't get his body contorted properly. Then you get a guy off a clean catch off the inbounds who gets a three off and doesn't make it. I mean, again, sometimes you need the luck of the bounce of the ball, too. And so that sometimes it's just a perfect – I mean, remember the, there was a narrative about Jim Beheim for a long time in this tournament that he – he couldn't win it all. He got to a final in 80, 87 uh, with, with Syracuse, but he couldn't win it all. And finally, Carmelo Anthony took him on his back and got him a championship. So, um, yeah, I think you go enough times, eventually the perfect storm is going to happen. I, I I think Mick is a good coach. He's proven to be a good coach. And now this is the, just the feather in the cap for him, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think the tournament, as we always say, it's a bad way to figure out who the best team is usually. Although this year kind of looks like it's working out pretty well. We've got most of the best teams left other than maybe Illinois, but you know, so in that regard, I think you can probably say something similar about coaches and whether or not it's, if it's a good indication of how good of a coach they are, right? There's, there's some bad luck that factors into this. There's some good luck that factors into this for other guys. For instance, this run with Mick Cronin. I mean, you get Abilene Christian, in the round of 32, right? Well, that's, go, go, that's go back to nice the Michigan. St- yeah, go back to the Michigan State game. I mean, you grinded that win out, and how many bounces of the ball could have gone your way, right? Sure, you probably got their toughest Christian. win. Uh, you know, you go back to the round of 16 game. I mean, there's a bunch of those along the way, and and you know, if if Michigan makes the open three from the top of the key, was that was that Mick Cronin's fault as a coach, or was that just a guy who's a good shooter got a clean look just off of a nice set? Bam, bam, bam. So instead, the guy airballs it. Does that make Juwan Howard a bad coach? No, he got his guys two really good looks at the end of, end of the game and they just didn't make them. Right. So I guess my point would be that I do think there is a little bit of that, that the, the NCAA tournament doesn't dictate how good of a coach you are because there is a lot of luck involved in a, a one-game tournament scenario. However, I think there is also, when you have a an extended 
uh, resume of getting to the tournament and losing early. I think there are some reasons why that has happened. If you look at Mick Cronin and the difference between this UCLA team and all of his previous teams at, at UC, everyone's talking about the defense of UCLA because they held Michigan to 49 points last night in a game that only had 59 possessions. But if you look at this UCLA team, they're 13th in offensive efficiency. Right. They're an elite offensive group. They're only 45, 45th in defensive efficiency. So they are a good defensive team, but not elite by any means. And the reason for that is Mick Cronin has a lineup out on the floor most times that is really good on offense. And they're not as tough for physical or as, as defensive-minded as a lot of his past teams have been, meaning he's made some concessions. And part of that is because they lost guys before the year started and after the year started. They lost some top guys that they were counting on. So he had to mix and match lineups a little bit more than usual. But the other part of it is, I'm a firm believer that when you're in the tournament and really not just the tournament at all times, players win you games and yes. he has one of the best in the tournament right now. in Johnny Juicing. Yep. And that's the reason they won last night against a better Michigan team because Johnny Juicing was the best player on the court. Uh, the one thing that Mick has always been very good at from an offensive perspective, or at least I would say it's kind of his offensive style is he puts his best player in position over and over again to get the ball and try to score. He runs, he bogs the offense down. He runs a lot of sets for that one guy. There's a lot of times guys are just standing around watching that one guy, but he gets his best players in position. You think of Sean Kilpatrick, you think of Jacob Evans. And now you look at Johnny Juicing throughout this tournament. He's really good. At Jaron Cumberland when he had him. Jaron Cumberland, another great example. He gets those guys over and over into their spots where they can do something. And this time he happens to have a guy that is elite. Johnny Juicing is one of the best players in the country in the past. Yeah, and he has some guys around him too, more talent, more depth than Mick Cronin's ever had around a guy like that. So it just works out a little bit better. But I, I, I Johnny, do, think Johnny Juicing would have helped Cal. There's no question. I mean, even last year, you you look at what Juicing's doing. He's a different player, obviously, as a sophomore. But you mm -hmm. look at what he's doing now. You wonder, did Cal not use him nearly enough last year? Could he have helped Maybe. that UK team last season more as a freshman? Even when you see what he's able to do as an all-around scorer and not just a spot-up shooter. Yeah, no, I, I mean, and that's a possibility. And obviously, he wanted an opportunity to play. That's why he left. And voila! Not only does he play, he helps. He he helps lead a team to a Final Four. Yeah. Now, in fairness, that you know, UCLA is like his backyard. It is actually home for him. So it was a homecoming thing too. I think that played a huge factor in it. But you know. What a, what a gift for Mick Cronin in UCLA. One other point I wanted to hit on about coaching in the NCAA tournament that I think is interesting. I don't know how you could be a coach watching one this tournament, like Oregon State and what Wayne Tinkle was able to do scheming his way through it, or Jim Beheim any number of years over the last 10 years when he's been a, an 11 seed or whatever and made a run that you wouldn't think it's a good idea to have a change up on the defensive end, some type yeah. of zone, some something you can throw out there to change pace or play different. If a matchup isn't working out for you in your man to man coaches are so stubborn with the, we do what we do and we, we get everyone else to adjust to us. They just lose sight of what wins. Like it is yeah, very I'm, clear I'm, that I'm, having I'm, a secondary defense or maybe just your, your, your normal defense being a two, three zone, like, Syracuse's that teams don't prepare for. They aren't used to playing on a short turnaround in a, in a one game setting like this. I think it's very clear that it is a huge advantage to have an off speed pitch on the defensive end. 
Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I'm, I'm a big believer in the in the do what we do. Don't worry about what they do, and, and let's just stick to our guns. And I'm a, I think I've told you I'm a big press guy, and I like to mix up presses. But uh, you know, I'm stubborn with it. And even if I'm not getting anything out of it, I eventually have to have a coach come down to me and go, "Dude, it's not. We're not getting anything out of it. Get out of it." And, and usually they're right. Um, I'm not a big zone guy, but but there's been a couple times where just I've had to. I've even turned and gone. You know what? I'm gonna have to swallow hard and do it because we cannot guard them off the bounce. Let's just zone it up. We don't scheme. We don't. We really don't rep it much. But yeah, occasionally you just you got to swallow. Sometimes I think it's a pride thing too. I think Jim Beheim for him, it's pride. It's pride and joy. Is that two three zone in the way they play it? And yeah, sometimes you just got to swallow hard and go. You know what? We're getting nothing out of this. They're carving us up. Let's do something different. Well, and he doesn't. I mean, he he sticks to his zone. I know but, it. But his base defense is the knuckleball. He is throwing the knuckleball every single game, so it's already he, kind he, of a built-in he, he, different he, fit. Right? He is, and, and, and it's not a standard two-three. Obviously, it's right. Got I mean, they have a, all those things. But but still, yeah. the thing is, when you're going into that, you're not worried about every time down the floor wondering, is he in man or is he in zone? You know exactly what they're going to be, and you know kind of how to attack. I mean, honestly, if you go back to the West Virginia game, West Virginia knew how to attack it. They just put the wrong guy at the foul line to attack it. Sure, but again, it goes back to it's something you haven't seen yet. Whether you're, you're in the tournament, you haven't seen anyone else play that, or most of the regular season, you're just not working against that defense all the time. And I think well, and usually that, that really gives people trouble. Well, yeah, they recruit to it. They do a good job. But right. look, they struggle all season against ACC teams that are used to it. Right. And no, that's, prepared that's for it and know how to attack it. But then you get in the tournament against a team that, hey, we haven't played Syracuse in, you know, a decade or something, whatever it is. And they're just not used to playing against that style. They haven't prepared for it. It, it screws them up early, but not we're getting too stuck on Syracuse. I just mean more from a perspective no, I your point. of like yeah, I, Oregon I your point. State to me is the best example of this this year. They even against Porter Mosier, Wayne Tinkle schemed his ass off and uh, took it to the the golden boy of college basketball coaching, Porter Mosier, just by switching defenses, getting them out of they, what they want to do with their half court motion stuff, and doing a good job of attacking them on the other end. So I think those are my my two big things. Is that one what Mick has changed, and partly because he has the talent to do so to letting your best offensive players make plays, even if it comes at the expense of your defense, to me is the best way to win in the tournament. And then second, being able to coach to your talent and your personnel and the matchups that you're seeing and having that off-speed pitch as a defense is a big deal in the tournament as well. It's one thing I always thought made Chris Mack really good in the NCAA tournament. He would have some years where his team didn't have a great regular season, but then like, you know, the Matt Stainbrook year where they couldn't guard any ball screens and they started using that 1-3-1 and they go on a big run using that 1-3-1 defense in the tournament. It kind of became more of their base defense once they got into the postseason. I think things like that are, are a big deal in the NCAA tournament. And I don't know if, how you could watch this year's tournament with all the upsets and everything else and not think that you need to be adaptable and able to adjust when it hits the postseason now. Unless you're Gonzaga and you just put 90 points on the board every night. Yeah, if you have all of the best players on the court, <laughs> yes. it does help. Yes. That is a good yes, way that, to go about things. It helps immensely. That's a good transition to the next thing I wanted to ask you. It, can any of the teams left, Baylor, Houston, or UCLA, beat this Gonzaga team? I guess Baylor can, um, I, and I'm one that didn't think they'd get to the final four, and I don't know why. Maybe just the way the, the regular season in the, in the conference tournament went for them just made me doubt them. But their guards are good. They well, I think it, after, the, after they had their break, they came back, and they weren't quite the same team right. for a while. Right. But now they're looking – I mean, everyone said it, but they do look more like the team we saw early 
in the season before they hit their little uh, and quarantine. the funny part funny part was and this doesn't happen very often as you know in the AP poll because there's always so much fluctuation I mean they were one two for how many weeks this year right I mean it was them it was the two of them for the longest time until Baylor did start to lose and the poll started to fluctuate a little bit Gonzaga obviously stayed at number one throughout but in 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 in, in really large part these were these emerged early as the two best teams in the country. The only waiver to it was Baylor wobbling, like you said, when they came back off the off the, the COVID break. Um, but, you know, I, I've heard some people talk about maybe the loss in the Big 12 was the best thing for them to get them a little recharge, just get away from it and get focused on the tournament. Um, and, and they've played extremely well. I, I've been impressed with them, and, and I'm one that doubted them. I just I, – I, I told you before the tournament, I thought the two, the two sure things for me were Illinois and, and Gonzaga making the Final Four. Other than that, I thought it was a crapshoot, and Baylor – Baylor's not backed into these wins, man. They've they've been fairly dominant. So I, I I don't see Houston doing it. I don't see UCLA even coming close to doing it. The run, I mean, it's been a great run. Um, it would be a, a shock of shocks in my opinion because they're just not going to score enough. Um, I think Baylor has a fighting chance. Um, but you know, the, the funny part to, to Gonzaga is, I mean, every win's been a double digit win, and I don't care who they've played, how it's gone. You do that, man. You're proven to be damn dominant. And all you have to do is, I mean, they, that's the thing, Rick, you know, they, they so pass the eyeball test. It's absurd. I mean, they're just so good offensively. Um, you're just, you're not going to get consistent stops against them. You're just not, unless they just have one of the worst shooting nights that they could ever have. And even then, I think they've got answers for that by pushing pace, playing through Timmy. I mean, they've, they've just got every answer you can want. It, it's hard to explain because they're so efficient and precise with their passing, but yet they, they, they play at a different speed. It looks like, right. It, it really does. It looks like they're at a different speed than everybody else. That's exactly what I was getting ready to say. It feels like they're always on tilt in a pickup game. Like it's open gym. Yes. Yet they're so precise and efficient with all of it. It's really a weird vibe, but you're right. I mean, they don't, they're, they are so much more fun to watch than any other team right now in the tournament because of that, just the entire game. It feels like they're always running at you and attacking and they're not always playing super fast. I mean, they typically are pushing the pace as much as they can, but even when they reset and work it through their half court offense, it's like all their guys just have a different pop and pace to the way they, they go about attacking you. They all just feel like, Oh, at any point we can just throw a backdoor cut for an oop or launch this three and, pull up on you it's like everyone out there has so much confidence and they're just a really fun group to watch i just think that the reason that baylor would not be able to beat gonzaga i know everyone's saying that's the best matchup because they have the perimeter firepower but gonzaga inside i mean they shoot such a high percentage around the rim and baylor just doesn't have the same size inside i mean their big men are not what gonzaga has yeah, but to me, though, I mean, you got to make a case for somebody. I don't think I, I, there's no way you make a case for UCLA pulling this off. And for Houston, I mean, they live on so much on the offensive glass. I don't see them dominating the offensive glass like they do against other teams. I don't see them doing it against Baylor, to be honest with you. No, I, I agree with that. I, I think if I had to give I don't think Houston is going to beat Baylor either. But if I, I had either. to give any team the best chance of beating Gonzaga, I actually might say it's Houston because I think you've got some guards that are monsters. I mean, Dejan Giroux could theoretically have just an, a monster game and, and play with Jalen Suggs. Quentin Grimes on the wing is just incredible, and he can really 
catch fire from the outside. And then they have some empty trips, though. Possessions. You're right. No, I'm I'm with you on that. They really do. But inside, though, they'll bang with you. I mean, they they can really rebound. So I think that would give you a little bit more of a, of a chance, a fighting chance there. Um, I just, yeah, I don't think any of these three teams, to be quite honest, can beat Gonzaga. If I, I if I had to give one team the best chance, I guess I'd say Houston, but I don't see it happening for any of these teams. Yeah, I'll give Baylor the best chance, but it, by best chance, where are they going to be? Probably a seven and a half point underdog. And I think I'd tell you I'd lay the seven and a half right now. Well, I said last time we talked that I was wondering if there would be a point spread within double digits, and we've had it now twice, but yeah, both of them shouldn't have been. I mean, it was pretty no, correct. clearly correct. You know, pretty much the same game back-to-back times. So, I, yeah, I, I would agree with you that I could see them being – probably double digit winners in each of the next two games, final four and the championship be be quite a run for an undefeated team. And then we can talk about this next week when, when this is all over with, and then where do you put them on the pantheon of great teams? I mean, they they certainly pass the eyeball test. Yes, they do. Especially in a year where I don't think there were many other great teams. No, right. Agreed. One of the subplots of this year's tournament has been the battle between the NCAA and athletes regarding their name, image, and likeness. Both men and women's players have been tweeting hashtag not NCAA property throughout the tournament while speaking about the situation. One of the players who led the way on the men's side was Iowa's Jordan Bahannon, who just recently announced that he may decide to return to Iowa for another year if Iowa passes Senate file 245, which would allow college athletes in Iowa to make money off their name, image, and likeness. Six state legislatures have already passed NIL laws and an additional 13 introduced them in 2021, according to Sports Illustrated. Florida's name and image and likeness law will go into effect July 1st, making it the seventh state to enact legislation. Skinny, I'll ask you, do you think we've hit a turning point in this battle and the players have finally created enough momentum to get the NCAA's name, image and likeness rules changed? I sure hope so. And and, and I would say this in those states that don't, I, I think eventually you're going to be in a compromised position for the states that do because they're going to get all the good players, right? Well, but we still need the NCAA to approve it too. Well, that's true too. And that's I don't the know other why, side of this. They yeah, pushed that I, back I, I, in January I, when they were right. supposed to approve it. And I don't know why they're kicking and screaming with this. The money's not coming out of your pocket, so why are you worrying about this? I, they, I, I, don't, I don't get that. They are literally fighting the idea that they would have to share the potential of profit. These these players aren't taking away profit from the schools directly. Right. It's the potential that they might take some ad or promotional dollars that you could potentially get. I mean, it's really you're honestly, sharing it, a percentage it, of the pie that you don't even have yet, basically. And I would say for the NCA, which is obviously overstressed from, from an enforcement standpoint, and I don't know if this, this eliminates everybody with McDonald's bags with cash in it, but I think it'll at least maybe change the tide. Maybe if you just stop worrying about it, maybe that stuff stops happening because these guys can go make legitimate money as opposed to getting illegitimate money along the way. Then you don't have to sweat at NCAA. You don't have to worry about school A cheating, school B cheating, school C cheating, and throw your hands up and go, we can't do anything about this. Well, okay. I mean, this, this, this is almost a, a remedy for you. Well, and that's the funniest thing. You mentioned like compliance. That's the NCAA's favorite thing to do is to, to sign more of their cronies up for jobs, making seventy dollars to $100,000 a year doing nothing but telling schools they're doing the wrong things and kids that they're not allowed to participate. This will create more jobs for all yeah. of your buddies at the NCAA offices. It's a win-win for you. Now, if these rules do get passed, then it's going to be a situation where I mean, it's highly restricted. They're saying you can't use your school to help yourself make money you you know the school can't be featured in any of your promotional stuff that you do uh and the the payments the way you can make your money it's all gonna have to be very uh 
above board, above the table. It's all going to have to be legit money. What I really want here is when somebody hits a buzzer beater here in the Sweet 16, I want that dude to be able to put out his Venmo on Twitter and everyone just sends him money. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be a great viral moment if after these games you heard, oh, so-and-so made that game winner last night, and then the fans at Abilene Christian flooded him with $150,000 via his Venmo account. Wouldn't that be a great viral moment for sports? I think that would be really fun. Yes, it will get abused. Who cares? The biggest schools are already getting all the best recruits. What does it matter? Yeah, I'm not one that would pay someone for that because I really wouldn't care, but I get your point. And Neither the same would thing, I, but you know fans would. Sure, and, and and the other part, too, is this whole selling of of, of highlights that, that uh, what would you call it, the non-fungible yeah. token thing. I mean, Very that's true. your highlight that you could create and make money off of the highlight. Now, you could also, if, the, if you can't use this, that's fine. Then you know what? You can probably Photoshop the name off of it and it's still going to have your team colors, whatever. That, that, all, that I, I think the whole thing is just silly. It, it really is just... I, again, let them go make whatever money they can make. Who is it hurting at the end of the day? Honestly, again, I'm not going to pay $5 for Fred for making a game-winning shot for good old state you because I really don't care enough of to give not. Fred his 5 bucks. But you know what? I know some people will. And if yep. Fred can make his 5 bucks here and his 8 bucks there and his 13 bucks there and he looks up and he's got $23,246 after one shot made in the tournament, good for you. Well, think about when the uh, we had the Andy Dalton touchdown Right. Put put the Bills into the playoffs. Yes, and, remember, and the good that that did. Remember all those Bills fans that just flooded his charity with donations? That's what I'm talking about right here. Those viral moments are great. And you could just take, like, what if a kid from an Abilene Christian, for instance, or one, one of those other small schools had their big moment, and then they made a bunch of money? Because guess what? When they got there earlier in the year, they probably didn't get any promotional deals for playing for Abilene Christian in yeah. town. You know, they probably didn't make much money throughout the year, but that one opportunity, if they made a bunch of betters throughout the country, all this money, you could see people tipping the kid and giving them some money. I think that would be awesome. Now that's not going to be allowed. And the thing I'm concerned about when they say you're not allowed to use your team to promote yourself is, does that mean these kids can't be influencers? Does that mean they can't have a YouTube channel promoting, like doing a daily vlog showing what the life of a student athlete is like? Because that is, in my opinion, the biggest opportunity for these kids to really make a career path for themselves and really make some money going forward even after their playing days is by building a following. And that brings it back to the original question of, do you think we've hit a turning point? I think where the NCAA really screwed up and why this is probably going to go through now is because of the way they handled the women's tournament. And all the issues they had by doing the the giant weight room for the men's tournament and doing essentially the nothing. Men. They had like six <laughs> dumbbells for the women, exactly. which was like just an absolute joke. How are you so stupid in this day and age when everyone has a social media account that they're just yeah, going right. to post that type of stuff and the food discrepancies between the two tournaments? Like that to me is what's really going to screw the NCAA in these negotiations because they've really pissed some people off in a year where everyone, you know, they've got equality on their jerseys and all this stuff. And then they're pulling that. I think they're going to have to do some overcorrecting here and it's probably going to lead to them changing some rules. And the, the most fascinating part about all of that to me is I just saw a report this week that said out of all the teams left, in the, uh, I believe it was Elite Eight, maybe it was Sweet 16, but I, I think it was Elite Eight, men and women's, eight of the top 10 athletes still left in terms of their social media following were women. Wow. Athletes. So the, the, the people who have the most opportunity to profit here off of their name, image, and likeness are the women. 
the girls that have over 500,000 followers like Paige Beckers from UConn, they can be legit influencers. I mean, the, the estimates were that they would be making over 600,000 to a million dollars this year off of sponsorship posts on their Instagram accounts or on TikTok. I mean, this is real money and, and real opportunities for some of these kids. And on the women's side, there's not that NBA or overseas money for them to go make the same right. way the, there is on yeah, the men's yeah, side. Yeah, the WNBA money is not even comparable, not even close. And understandably so, but not even close. Right. They could legitimately carve out a bigger career path for mm -hmm. themselves as a YouTuber or an Instagrammer or what have you by playing college athletics. If you give them that opportunity to me, it's just a no brainer. You got to fix this. You got to make it right. And I think we finally might be at that point, if nothing else, than for the reason the NCAA was so stupid to screw up the two tournaments and, and offer slightly better food and a decent weight room. And that's where I go back to the simplest part of all of this. Who is this hurting? What give me the downside. Yeah, it's you just control. It's just control over the student right. athletes, if we're being honest. Yeah. But you're already losing that with the transfer portal. So you might as well just rip the band-aid <laughs> off altogether and <laughs> screw it, right? All right, Skinny, let's get into our betting segment and wrap up this talk about the NCAA tournament. Just an absolute brutal week for your boy, which everyone has made me well aware of. You and I were on opposite sides, my man. We were. It worked out well for you, not so much for me. My text messages, my mentions on Twitter. They've, they've made me fully aware of that. I was three and five last week. I'm now 18 and 26 in basketball. You are six and two, which brings you to a winning record. Now you are 23 and 21 overall through our uh, brief basketball portion of the betting segment. All right. We've now got a final four matchup of Baylor, a five point favorite over Houston. 134 and a half is the total. Give me your pick on the side and the total skinny. I'm going to go Baylor and the over, even though the, the over part is the one I think I'm going to end up sweating for some reason, just because, as I mentioned, Houston seems to go through some empty trips um, and the whole stage of the final four. Um, I just think I think Baylor wins this game handily double digits. I'll go Baylor and they can score, too. I'm going to go Baylor 74, 63. So Baylor in the over for me. All right. The, I'm with you on the total. That It's just a tough number right there. And these two teams are hard to predict because Baylor can really score. Tough to predict a total, but I'm going to go over on that 134 and a half too. I'm going to pick Houston though to cover the five. I don't think they win the game. I think Baylor pulls off the win, but I'm going to go Houston in the point. So Houston plus five and the over is the play for me. Yeah, and, and I'm saying this despite the fact that I did cash a ticket on Houston going to the Final Four. I had a future bet on them, so I, I I I should feel good for them and like them, but I really don't care about them anymore. So I'm going <laughs> I'm just I'm going with what my head says. I'm going with Baylor. All right, we've got Gonzaga as a 14 point favorite in a my, Final my Four goodness. game over UCLA. The total is 146 in this one. I'm 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 taking the points. I'm going to probably regret it when they they win 85-53 cuz um, that's probably on the table but um I, I mean UCLA is cuz I don't see why the MO should stop now and kind of like when I when I took Oregon State in the in the game against uh, Houston um the other night on a, on a different game I'm on it's just I just rode that wave of of them gritting games out and yeah I got a late backdoor cover cuz I was getting seven and a half and the kid banged the three at the top of the key but so I think UCLA just grits its way through it where it's maybe a seven point game at the half. Um, Gonzaga still is going to win this. And I think it went it comfortably, but that's a pretty big number to me. I'll go Gonzaga. And I think Mick will try to limit possessions. I'll go, I'll go Gonzaga 78, 68. So right, Gonzaga so in the under. 
Well, you're saying UCLA and the under. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, UCLA with Gonzaga to win the game outright by 10. Yes, UCLA in the in the, in the under. Right. Uh, I'm going Gonzaga here. I first of all, why stop now? I've been been getting <laughs> Gonzaga to cover the spread on all these double digit spreads. They've been doing so, and yeah, I have been betting against Mick to lose this whole time and he hasn't done so so here's your perfect I, storm right I, something has to give and i can't stop i'm addicted to betting against mick cronin and letting him just take my money so i'm gonna keep it going gonzaga minus 14 and i'm gonna go with the over here gonzaga here's the thing about the michigan matchup for ucla that was perfect Michigan wanted to play through its big men, especially without Isaiah Livers. They had limited offensive firepower, and they liked playing through their bigs, which meant that UCLA was easily able to grind that game down to a halt and play at Mick's perfect ideal pace for that scenario against a team that was probably a little bit more talented than his. Gonzaga ain't going to let you do that. You, you can't stop them from pushing the ball up and down the court because they score too well. They don't have empty possessions like Michigan was going through. It's, it's just going to be a different game. I'm going to take the over here because I think UCLA actually can score a little bit. They won't be able to take Gonzaga out of their transition stuff. Uh, so I think it's going to be actually a pretty high scoring game and, and it'll go over that 146. All right, there we go. Uh, one other thing to look at, and I did tweet this out there as well. We don't have any ask any anything questions for, for this edition of the podcast. So I did want to throw out one thing I'm looking at in terms of a player future here. Jalen Suggs of Gonzaga is currently sitting at plus 750 to win the NCAA tournament's most outstanding player award. And uh, I mean, you look at Jalen Suggs tournament to this point, he had, he, he had a slow first round because he didn't play much against Norfolk State, only 18 minutes, but then he had 16 points, three rebounds, three assists against Oklahoma. He had 9.6 assists, five rebounds against Creighton, and he had 18 points, 10 rebounds, and eight assists, nearly had the triple-double in the win over USC. He was fantastic, best player on the court against USC. I think there's a very good chance that he will dominate in the final four and the championship game as well. I think plus 750 to have a guy that could end up being the top overall draft pick in this year's uh, NBA draft is a decent little chance to take. Yeah, I asked you, and, and um, you said both Kist, uh, Corey Kispert and, and Timmy were plus three fifty. The yeah, Baylor the guys, the Baylor guys' value wasn't very good, right? The, most of those guys are what four and a half to one, five to one, maybe. Yeah, Butler is four to one. Teague is four to one. Davion Mitchell is five to one, which he's been great too. He, he has been there, but but I I don't, I don't see the value there is the problem. If if you gave me fifty bucks right now, I think I'd put thirty bucks on Timmy. At three and a half to one, 30 to win a little over 100, and I'd put 20 to win 140 on Suggs. I think that's, I think you're right. It's great value. I can't take a UCLA guy. I mean, I guess if I wanted, maybe I'd throw 10 bucks on Johnny Juzang just if he continues the run because I'm going to guess, is he double digits? I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, Juzang is 16 to one. But again, they have to win a game. He's not going to win most outstanding. He's got to beat Gonzaga in the first. Finals. Right. Yeah. And that's where, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I maybe will put 10 on that for just, just in case something goofy happens. But honestly, if you gave me 50 bucks right now, I think I'd split it 30 on Timmy to win a hundred and something and, and 20 on, on Suggs to win a hundred and something. And I'd come away with a, at least a, a $60 profit. If either one, I got, I think at that point I got two really good choices to win the most outstanding player. Yeah, no, I agree. So that's kind of what I'm looking at in terms of futures. Nothing else really jumped out to me. And when I was looking through those this morning, but I do really like that idea of Suggs. No, so I, I'm with you. I mean, that, look. That, that, that's the good value. And then the, the problem is you have to choose between Timmy and Kispert. I just think Timmy's got the better chance to have a great, great final four. 
I agree too. And he's kind of been the darling the of guy, this year's right. tournament yeah. in general. Yep. They're showing him so yep. much on TV. Announcers clearly love him. So no I think he's the media darling to an extent. So I think he's probably odds on favorite right now. Yep, I would agree. All right, Rick, enjoy it very much. We'll be back uh, probably at our normal spot next week on Thursday as opposed to Wednesday. If you're going to opening day, bundle up. If you're not, drink safely, drink wisely. Don't drink too much and, and stay warm because I cannot believe we're going to have a 38 degree opening day. Ooh, uh, man. Hot meat Brutal. kettle. Do, do as right. I say, not as I do. Hey, it's, it's right. I mean, that's that's kind of how I parent. Okay. <laughs> I'm Richard Skeppin, the Skinny Podcast, the weekly Oprah edition.